Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Share Watch podcast. So, with a new name comes a new affiliation. So, I am delighted to announce for the month of September, I'm going to be working with an amazing pal of mine, Laura Farrington. So, Laura was back on the podcast a little while ago where she spoke about how she has dealt with her own meditation, how she's dealt with her own anxiety, how she's dealt with her own traumatic past experiences. And Laura and I have been friends for a long, long time at this stage. And Laura has launched a a new meditation service. And it's perfect for someone who's feeling anxious, stressed, or simply looking to feel better in their own daily routine and daily life. Laura is providing classes Monday to Friday for 15 minutes. So 7 a.m. is one class, 8 a.m. is the next class. It's simply 15 minutes. And it's a beginner's journey into meditation. Laura qualified to teach meditation about five years ago. Uh, through her course in India and she's also a fully fully qualified yoga teacher as well and the classes are incredible so I'm delighted to be partnering up with Laura there's classes that you can sign up for weekly passes there's daily passes or there are other passes as well and it's hugely important that if you're looking forward to create some sort of morning routine with the kids going back to school trying to start start off your day right or you're looking to do a quick meditation, maybe even the bus or in the car when the kids are kind of gotten out of the car or else even in the shower or whatever it may be, you can you can work with Laura and kind of join in and book that 15 minutes in for yourself and that could start off the day on the right foot. So if you're interested in working with Laura and joining up for a course, head over to Meditate With Laura on Instagram or head over to www.meditatewithlaura.ie and I have a code of Shane25, S-H-A-N-E, 25 for 25% off your initial first purchase. So if you are interested in work with Laura, www.meditatewithlaura.ie, Shane25 is the discount. And I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today is volume 22 of Coach's Corner. And today is a Q&A that some of the clients have sent in through come through DMs and some of the stuff that has kind of come in. I haven't really answered on the actual Q&As that I do on a Wednesday because they're a little bit more specific and we kind of want to go through in a little bit more detail. But it is great to have all three of us. So Jane and Dallas, how are we? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Dallas. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> um, so we are going to kind of go straight into it. So I, we have the question right now. Hopefully the guys have done some prep. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> Dallas like, nope. Um, so we'll see. The first one is the great question. Is resting heart rate an indicator of recovery? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if we're going to take it, if okay, so if you're going to take resting heart rate, right, and if you are going to be someone who is going to be taking resting heart rate, first you need to set a baseline. So that's your first starting point. So at least spend about a week or two, preferably a month, creating a baseline, just seeing where you're at, what your actual resting heart rate is. And then from there, you'll be able to notice the difference in terms of what your training will do to you. And in terms of what sleep will do to you as well, as well as your nutrition as well. So once you've set that baseline, you can see that, for instance, if you wake up on a Tuesday and you did a ridiculously heavy leg session and your heart rate happens to be 10 points above your baseline, you can then make an insight to say that possibly you might be under-recovered, possibly. And this is because an aspect is that chronically if you keep seeing more and more elevated heart rate as you keep waking or resting heart rate keep being elevated over a period of time it is then a bit more indicative that you are under recovered however the issues rise from the fact that whatever the number can tell you you can psychologically get over it pretty quickly so my resting heart rate could say go up by 10 points but i could still feel wonderful and ready to train and that's the big key thing so it's like don't take the number as a definitive but take it as an insight into looking at go right what other things need to change because your cardio is going to change your resting heart rate so the more fitter you do get and the more zone two work you end up doing you're going to end up noticing your heart resting heart rate will go down it also means that if you end up doing a little bit longer cardio compared to normal, you can see resting heart rate go up. You can see resting heart rate go up for terrible sleep. You can also see it go down based on good sleep. Psychological changes as well as diet changes will also see changes in that. So it's like you first need that baseline. And if you are using it, then you can use that baseline to give you an insight. 
But then as well as you should then also ask yourself, do you actually feel recovered? And are you just using this number to just say, I'm not going to train? I think that's a very valid point at the end because I wrote a question. Is this just another metric to be kind of like trying to control you or trying to kind of like become a little bit obsessed about when there's bigger, like your body's probably going to be the best computer or the best metric for your for your recovery. If you're feeling fatigued either from your cycle or feeling fatigued after your sessions or before you go into your sessions and your sleep routine or your stress levels or your balance is a little bit out of kilter, you probably don't need a heart rate monitor or one of these like fit zone things to tell you. Otherwise you probably know the answer. Are you just trying to control something else? Um, which is not ultimately going to like your, your human computer will, will tell you otherwise. Yeah. It's, uh, it's recognizing that if you are using your resting heart rate, you also need a whole bunch of other data coming with it. So it's also, you need to know, make sure that sleep is good. Are you getting sufficient REM to ratios between REM and deep sleep? Then are you actually training hard? What's your subjective values? What is your perceived value of recovery? So when you bring in these data points, it's in isolation, they don't tell you something. But when you start bringing them in a kind of a vast array of all the other metrics that you can kind of bring in, like your heart rate variability, and you start bringing in your sleep metrics in terms of your training metrics, how you think you're um, doing in the gym, how you think you received in the gym, all these data then give you an idea of going, am I actually recovered? It's not just one data point where everyone looks and goes like, cool, the number said I am 90 today. For instance, like my ring will be like, oh, your readiness today is 78. Oh, wait, I can still go out and smash in hard session because that is just the way I do things. But yeah, I can wake up on a day where it says 90 and I cannot feel like I want to train. What about yesterday? So yesterday you didn't sleep, or on Sunday night or Monday night, you didn't sleep great. So what was the what was the what was the metric on the ring and how did you, what did you do and how did you kind of counteract it or did you counteract it? So the ring gave me a 68 and carried on. Did my training as normal. Nothing changed. Because to me, a training is a non-negotiable. So whether my ring is going to tell me that you might be under recovered it means like well is my body telling me i'm under recovered no do i feel up and ready to go train hell yeah did i go and smash the session hell yeah because to me my training is a very psychological base that's not based on the fact i see the number the issue when i start recognizing from the ring is if i start noticing it gets to 50s and a consistent 50 because now it's picking up something that i'm not recognizing so if i see like a waking heart rate comes at 90 there's a problem here i've got a high dose of cortisol coming here if i start noticing my heartbeat doesn't lower in the evening and it's high there that's something to look into so that means now i've got some avenue to go look but it's not telling me the full picture so that's always the biggest thing it's like there's one bit of data point that gives you an insight and everything from that point can now be extrapolated and work to find out what's actually happening don't just go Oh, look, I'm going to recover. That's it. I'm not going to try. I like that answer. Um, so the next question is in relation to, I think this is the one for like all of us to kind of have some sort of say in it. And I think probably all of us have done it at some stage with our own training and nutrition anyway, is in relation to how to come off a dieting phase into maintenance. The question was worded slightly differently in that it was how to come off a dieting phase into eating normally. And that's where the polarity and the issue may arise in that eating normally is subjective. There is no normal. There is no odd. There is no strange. There is no anything like that. But I think I'm going to let you start off, Jane, on this and how to come off a dieting phase into eating, uh, into kind of maintenance and stuff. As you said, it is really subjective as to what's normal. If it is just coming into eating in a way that kind of aligns with your life, that is comfortable, that doesn't involve too much overthinking, overmeasuring, you know, that you can relax a little bit and that food can stop being the thing you're obsessing about every hour of every day. So, like, I think moving into maintenance is probably the easier way. It's like, yeah, the results you've gotten, your goal is to maintain them, to sustain a weight range or an aesthetic that is close to where you finished up your dieting phase. I'm going to assume that that's what most people asking that question would be suggesting. And I think it's take it. My advice would be to take it slowly. And um, for most people, because there's probably going to be after dieting and reaching a certain level, 
one, you're going to have been restricting most likely for a considerable amount of time. And you don't want to get yourself into a situation where it's suddenly I'm done, go batshit crazy, you know, like lose the run of yourself because that's not going to make you feel very good. Even if it doesn't impact your results very much, you're physically not going to feel great and mentally not going to feel great after it. So I would say start slowly. If you are tracking, add one to 200 calories more in, you know, add in an extra snack each day, something you enjoy, reintroduce perhaps foods that you weren't having as regularly that you really enjoyed, perhaps at the end, reaching the end of your dieting phase, reintroduce them steadily into the weeks that follow and take it slowly with it, that you're comfortable. That will minimize any fat gain. So technically, if you want to minimize fat gain, that's the best way to do it. Take it slowly, increase your calories slightly by one to 200. See how you go with that and take it from there and build on it. And then when you feel comfortable and confident, that can be a period where you look at, do I want to move away from tracking? Do I want to have a more relaxed, flexible approach? But if you're someone who has a lot of fear stepping, going from dieting into not dieting, a tiered approach is probably going to suit you better. Some people who are very confident with dieting, who are actively, you know, say bodybuilders or whatever, who might be actively gaining a little, losing, shredding, doing that, like in that process, they may be more comfortable jumping up their calories quite significantly back up to maintenance because they're aware of how it works in their body, what happens. But if you are a general person, most of us, 99% of people who will be, you know, if they go through a dieting phase, want to move back into just eating more normally or moving into maintenance, I think take it, take it slowly um, to build confidence. If you're concerned about it, if you're worried about it, take it slowly. If if that is, if moving into maintenance and building on it is the way you want to go, take it slowly. And what about if someone isn't necessarily coming from a counting background, but they haven't been counting during, say, a losing a weight phase or a dieting phase, what little tools and stuff would you implement with them? That would depend somewhat on the tools they were using for fat loss in the first place. So if that person had moved into, say, choosing to omit carbohydrates from two meals a day and chose to have more vegetables. It could be the reintroduction of those foods that they eliminated to help support fat loss. So if they, you know, had been leaving out a little pasta in the evening or a couple of potatoes in their evening meal and only having carbs in their like breakfast and, you know, their lunch, like those more starchy carbs, they could reintroduce them again in their evening meal. So it'd be bring, if they've been using spray oil, it could be measuring tablespoons of olive oil back into their meals again. And just that inadvertently will add one to 200 more calories a day and slowly build on it. So again, if they have been missing out on, they've been leaving out um, their favorite cookie, their favorite chocolate bar. It could be having that favorite chocolate bar two days a week again, you know, and just reintroducing it when they really want it. And to take it, take it steadily and slowly again, still being mindful, still savoring their food and enjoying it and appreciating it. But again, it's about how did you lose the body fat? Was it in a sustainable way? Was it using a diet protocol that's sustainable for you? If not, what things have you been leaving out that are quite nourishing that you can reintroduce? What things did you leave out that nourish pleasure that you could reintroduce in moderation and then slowly bring them all back into play? You, Jane, you mentioned the word fear about kind of going back into maintenance. So I'm going to put this one to Dallas. How would you help a client in relation to trying to remove that element of fear or downplay or kind of downregulate or like diffuse that element of fear to go back up to maintenance from potentially being in a dieting phase for say 12 weeks or 16 weeks, whatever it may be. How would you kind of diffuse that fear? It depends on the client, of course, but if you take it from an aspect of where's the fear coming from? So if you know where the emotion is coming from, then you have a better chance of diffusing the emotion or what is the biggest key behind it. So it's like asking yourself some of these questions in terms of like, you know, what is it that I need? What is it I want? And what does the body need? So a lot of us want to be like, no, but I want to be, you know, dick skin lean. I want to have abs so shredded that I can see them from the freaking space station. It's like, yes, that's such a wonderful idea. You want that, but realistically, the body doesn't want to be there nor should be there for a sustainable period of time. So it's going, right, 
what do I need to do for longevity and what do I need to do? So it's like, right, trying to get over the fear is then going, as Jane was going on, it's small steps. So it's like when you're trying to diffuse something, diffuse any form of emotion, you need the person to be close enough to the emotion. So it's like, right. So if the person is then trying to get to maintenance, it's the small little, right. Our diet was, for instance, just say, you know, our last meal was chicken, broccoli and rice to make it a little bit easier. That means that to get us there and kind of accept that it's like, well, in that meal, if you just added some olive oil or if you added a bit of sauce, that is going to add a bit more calories. But it's nothing major. It's just something a little bit small and help the person through that. Another way of diffusing through that method is actually trying to notice what the person truly wants from their outcome. And that's a big thing. So a lot of people have the fear because they fear that a lot of what the hard work they put in is going to disappear. And they don't realize that once they actually go back to maintenance, they can start doing a lot more things with their body in terms of they now have the energy to actually go and do all of life's fun tasks. They can go out and enjoy themselves. They have more chance for social occasions. So it's like when you start showing them the ability where you're like, this is what you're afraid of, but this is also something that you gain. The person's now able to look at the both sides and go, right, there are some negatives, but there are also some positives. And then it allows the person to fuse from that thought and get to a position where they can accept things. That's a nice, easy way of doing it. Not everyone is willing to take the small steps, though. So then that's effectively just repeating the process of going, right, I want to take a small step, hold that position, wait and get used to this aspect. But a lot of it is literally come down to dealing with the emotions. So what emotion are you feeling? How's making your body feel? What are you doing with the emotion? Well, what about if someone is a little bit skeptical about like, well, they've been trying to lose weight for so long and this is kind of potentially the first approach that they've kind of come across and that this has been the most successful time that they've had. They haven't restricted any food. They haven't potentially have any overeating episodes or emotional eating has kind of been relieved a little bit and they're scared of, well, the scales is going to go up or my measurements are going to go up. How do you kind of work with that? I know it obviously depends on the client, but like some of the tools that you've used. So in a lot of that, it's also what's the biggest issue with the scales going up and what's the biggest issue with this uh, increase in measurements. So when you usually ask that question, one of the biggest things you get back is, yeah, but my worth is going to change or people are going to think I'm bigger. No, the scale hasn't changed any bit of your worth. Your measurements hasn't changed any bit of your worth. It's how you see and perceive yourself. So all that's the biggest scary that's effectively going on is how you see and perceive yourself. And that's a hard knock for anyone to listen to and understand that the scale's got nothing to do with it. Measurements got nothing to do with it. It's you living your life and being healthy and enjoying where you're at. So when they come to that and they get the fear, you've got those slowly get them to that point and slowly getting to the point means that I often have long conversations with them trying to work through that aspect so it means like where's the self-worth problem coming from why is it based on self-worth I think that's the biggest key so it's like I know it will change based on the person and sometimes it's not always sometimes you can't just make a big jump for some yeah Karen there's sorry there's like there's so much like we're taught that weight gain is negative and that it's a failure for so so long in our life it's like it's all you hear you know and then weight loss is celebrated so from the get-go people have that ingrained in their minds you know and it becomes that every problem can be fixed with weight loss if you gain weight you are automatically failing and so that fear is so deep-rooted that you gain weight you failed and then you feel like a failure and then you exacerbate the issue by possibly reaching for food because food has become your obsession from dieting. You're thinking about food all the time. So it's a very difficult cycle that people end up in. And it is, as you say, it's so filled with fear and it's challenging that narrative of like, what, what is the biggest fear? You know, what is, what is it that you fear most about waking? As you say, it is around self-worth and failure. So then it's like trying to get people to focus more on other, as you said, parameters of their life that are of value, that bring them value, that them as a person are of value beyond what they look like aesthetically. You know, it's like realistically, what's one kg going to make in a difference if somebody aesthetically or emotionally in any way, shape or form, it's not going to make a big difference. 
but you alone know that you've gained that kg and you alone are focused on it as a failure and that's so deep-rooted that it's very difficult to change and it takes a lot of compassion and patience and I think that's people expect things to happen quite quickly and that you know going there and dealing with the emotional stuff and focusing on the internal stuff it seems like too big an ask you want the end result but the fact that the biggest thing you have to get beyond in I think with a lot of people when you're talking about this and I've seen I've seen it myself seen it with clients I've worked with is the acceptance that they want the end result of not being so obsessed with food tracking weight body but the ingrained fear that taking the time to get there may cause them to gain a little weight and accept is so strong that it's hard to take the first step on that path. And so I believe it's really, really important to analyze that side of things first to what, what is the biggest fear with weight gain? What is the biggest fear with gaining a little bit of weight? If you are fighting your body constantly to remain or achieve a certain weight, maybe that's one, not where you should be, or maybe you need to address why dieting isn't working for you. A lot of the time, perpetual dieting, most people who do that perpetually for most of the, for the, the vast period of their life struggle with their weight. I have to challenge why is that? Like if you're permanently on a diet and you're in this mindset, what is the problem there? What is the issue that if you're constantly dieting, but you struggle with your weight, then the, the, the constant there is dieting. Focusing on fat loss constantly, that being your constant focus. And I think it's really bringing people back around. And I have nothing against dieting, fat loss, all that. Of course, not. I support people in doing it. It's part of my work. But focusing more, if you're struggling with that, on the healthy habits. Like, what is the life I want? What does my body deserve? What is the actions of a person who has that body or feels that way about themselves or lives that life or loves themselves that way? What actions can I take to make that happen? What choices can I make today for me to feel better today and happier tomorrow? And that doesn't mean you give up dieting and just go, Fecka, I'm throwing everything to win. It means you go, how can I nourish my body better? What, what, what will make me feel good about myself physically, emotionally? What makes me feel good you know and focus on those actions do I feel good after I work out or go for a walk yes I do so I'm going to work out and go for a walk because physically and mentally I feel better do I feel good when I eat a nourishing meal yes I do I go to the bathroom better my digestion's better I have more energy I probably sleep better I don't feel guilty I don't beat myself up so I'll choose to do it for that reason and so it's knowing your why by the choices it's understanding and owning your choices no matter what they are and trying to work towards making choices daily that you know will make you feel good you're stepping from dieting where it's all restriction punishment and if you've been in that perpetual cycle of restriction punishment negative must fear by making choices that are more about i want to feel good i want to nourish it doesn't mean you no longer care about retaining a certain weight. It doesn't mean you don't want to be healthy, fit, retaining a leaner aesthetic, even achieving a leaner aesthetic, but you're doing it inadvertently by making choices that make you feel good inside and out. And by changing that narrative is a very positive step in working towards, I'm not saying it's easy to do. It will require like a lot of discomfort in getting yourself there, but making a choice to start making those choices could be really powerful for people who are trying to move in that direction. Yeah, and it's acknowledging the cost yeah. of what you're doing. So it's like a lot of people will stick to dieting because it pays off, if you get me. So in a sense that we get a strong payoff that because I died, I feel good. Other people make me feel good. Everyone likes the fact that I've lost weight. So it's like, well, so I should permanently, perpetually diet. So it's like the avoidance of trying to put yourself into a position that not only is better for your health, but also better for you mentally is not there because the payoff is always going to be greater. 
but it's like we don't realize that the pain will always return. So it's like that negative talk that occurs, it's still going to come. Doesn't matter how long you died for, it's still going to come around. And then you've got to acknowledge the cost of the method or the strategy you're using. So it's like if the dieting is still going to occur, there's a cost to it. So it's like, are you willing to take that cost that you're always going to be in a negative state of mind? And it's like, nah, it's probably time for a new strategy, not maintenance. But it takes a while for someone to recognize that. And nobody praises you for it. It doesn't know you, you know. You don't get that reward. That It's like that hit, that like lovely, like when people go, oh, you look great. Oh, you lost weight. Oh, this. You don't get that hit, that endorphin rush of achievement, you know, because weight loss is applauded relevant of like you know weight gain is not always bad weight loss is not always good you know inside now for people i think that's it's really hard for people to separate that yeah i think a lot of it like as you said it it kind of it can latch on to an identity as well in the fact that you have to be seen a certain way to be accepted by society but ultimately you're looking for validation from people that you wouldn't swap places with one you're looking for validation of people who you really and truly don't give a shit about and truly and frankly they don't give a shit about you either in a roundabout way in a nicey nicey way that wasn't a nicey nicey way that was me being an ass um but like especially if you're looking for validation of strangers or if you're looking for validation of people let's say if you're in a work um environment or you're if you're in the the cap the the canteen at work and stuff like that you're looking for validation of other people that ultimately you don't really one respect and two you don't really hang around with them outside so why does their opinion truly matter to what way you should look because in a way you should look is the way you want to feel and like fitness or health doesn't have a weight it doesn't have a weight so why try to strive for a weight because you can't control it it's like a bloody stock exchange it, the prices go up and down on a regular basis fluctuations with the the, the cycle so fluctuates with digestion, fluctuations with hydration, sleep, stress. There's so many different things, so many different variables that you can't control. And by trying to control everything, you're actually controlling fuck all. And that's the opposite. And that's the big thing. You mentioned, Jane, about kind of like you've alluded to a little bit of kind of like about trust in your body when you've ignored your kind of satiety or your hunger levels and your signals for years. That word was way too difficult for me to say. <laughs> I tried, I tried to let it pass. I looked at Jane and she was like, just smiling at the camera. I was like, shit. I, got, I, I, I have no kill. Uh, yeah. So how do, you try, how do you start trusting your body again when you've been ignoring your signals? Like you've been working off an app. Yes. Like my fitness pal or one of those things for a very long time. How do you start trusting yourself again? So it's going to take some practice and patience. <laughs> if you have not, and it's like, everyone's like, F that. <laughs> Fuck that. What, what's the trick? Tell me the real tricks. Send Never me the knows. Um, it's going to take a bit of time. You have to learn to reintroduce yourself to your true hunger and fullness. And that's something that we all have within us. But if you have been using apps for a very long time and tracking, and again, this isn't feeding on any apps or anything like that, or using that method. But if you've been doing it for a long time, you can, you can start to tune out from your true hunger and fullness. You can start eating because you've got calories left. You can start repressing true hunger because you don't have enough calories and you start learning to do this. You start adjusting to this. You, you no longer listen to your cues, your natural cues, what your body's telling you. You start following what the app is telling you you can and can't have or what you've been set and finding ways to manipulate your daily food intake to fit that. So your hunger and fullness kind of goes out the window a little bit. You know, it's there, but you know, there can be a little bit of fear to when you let go of the app that you're not going to be able to manage or control or understand how to do it. So tuning back into your hunger and fullness takes a little bit of practice. One, it's recognizing the fact that it's okay to be hungry. Hunger is okay. You know, it's natural. It's our body's way of telling us that we might need food soon, you know, and it's recognizing the difference between being starving and hungry. So when you first feel hunger, a good way to start is kind of like feel a little bit of a, a rumble, wait 30 to 60 minutes, see how you feel. Start practicing doing that and see how your hunger and fullness goes with it. There's a lot of fantastic hunger and fullness scales you can check out online and that as well. And they're a great way when you haven't really understood your hunger for a long time to start gauging what the different feelings mean. So it's kind of like if you are excessively hungry, 
our decision making goes out the window when it comes to food. And that is when if you leave yourself to be so, so hungry, you'll just eat whatever's put in front of you. You will eat with abandon. When you're that hungry, you can tend to overeat. That can be when you get a bit mindless and you eat beyond fullness. Recognizing not allowing yourself to get to the point of when you can't think straight, your belly's really, really rumbling. All you can think about is food. You would eat absolutely anything, you know? Don't allow yourself to get to that point. Don't allow yourself to get to a point where you're getting lightheaded. That's too hungry. You should eat at a level when you feel a bit of hunger, the belly's rumbling, you know, you know you would enjoy a really good meal, something, something like that will satisfy. It's tuning into that. And this, the hunger fullness scale is really good. It's like a level of one to 10. And it kind of guides you to stay between three and seven with where you eat. And it's like eat when you are hungry, but not excessively so. And kind of stop when you are satisfied before you are so full, your stomach stretched, you're over full, you're sighing, you have to undo the trousers, that type of thing. It's learning that scale. And that's the, that's the place where we are at our best, where our decision-making is good. We're mentally feeling good. We're physically feeling good. We have energy. It's like a place where we are at our happiest. Our body is feeling good, a good level of hunger, a good level of satisfaction and not being overly stuffed. And it takes time to reintroduce to that. And it is recognizing it for yourself and asking yourself quite questions, challenging yourself around your behaviors around food. So I always say, like, we talk about the food and mood journal, and it really is something that I think is really beneficial for people moving away from tracking. We would do it with people who are tracking, who are not. But if you're moving away from tracking, particularly if you do enjoy data and tracking things, track your feelings, not your food for a while. So track or how you feel around eating. Tracking your feelings not alongside your food would be really helpful. And by feelings, I don't just mean emotions. This can be data collection in a lot of different ways. It's not just about like the feels. It's about more than that. It's about how hungry are you? How are you physically feeling? And this can help you tune into your reasons behind reaching for certain food, what food you choose when you're excessively hungry. And it can also teach you to start recognizing when it is best for you to eat and like when it is best for you to eat nourishing meals. So track how you feel before, during, and after. And that is going to be emotionally, like if you're stressed, angry, sad, all those things. And it's also going to be, I was very hungry. You know, my belly was grumbling. All I could think about was food. Or I was just comfortable. Like I was just a little bit hungry. I was looking forward to my meal. I was ready to savor a good meal. Then during your meal, how you're feeling? Did you, did you eat it slowly? Did you savor or did you wolf it down? Did you eat quickly? Did you feel you were mindless and you were like shoving it down your throat? And then afterwards, were you so full that, you know, your belly was bloated, you felt stuffed, you felt uh, like felt uncomfortable, or did you feel satisfied? Like I was satisfied. I enjoyed that meal. And it can really help you understand the decision making behind your food and the choices you're making and tuning back into that hunger fullness. So it's giving yourself tools and it's really to try and stop judging your choices. Like it's not about judgment. Like this data is there for curiosity. Be curious, learn. You're learning, you know, it was, there's been a lot of habits that have been ingrained in you. You have conditioned yourself through the years and been conditioned by society, by different reasons to think a certain way, to behave a certain way. So if you want to move away from that, it's going to take similar. But when you're doing it similarly, you have to be more compassionate. You know, the reasons around you that this has happened and you've got to this position have no compassion for you. You know, it's like if it's stuff around you that's going on or an app. You know, it's the, that doesn't have any control, but you can control how compassionate you are about the process and taking your time with it will make a big difference. It's like being compassionate with yourself. You can support moving away from tracking, tuning into your hunger and fullness by making positive choices that help you feel like you are still nourishing. So choose more wholesome foods, you know, with your meals, try to still focus on the quality of your diet most of the time. Focus on like getting your fibrous food, your protein, having a good meal structure there. You can focus on those things while you're doing this to support health and to support how you're feeling. You can make positive choices within your food. And knowing you're doing that, you're choosing more nourishing foods most of the time. You're tracking how you feel around foods. When you choose a more pleasure-driven food, you're going to learn how you feel about that. You'll learn when you choose it out of genuine pleasure and you savor the pleasure and you get the pleasure pleasure matters and food is awesome and we should freaking enjoy it and have some of it just purely for pleasure but 
make sure you get the pleasure and tracking it will help you understand that. You'll be like, I really love that Magnum. It was amazing. I really enjoyed it. Or it'll be, I don't even really remember eating it. I ate it so quickly. I ate four of them. So it's pleasure, not pleasure, pleasure versus punishment. And you learn. And so I think that tracking your feelings along with your food is a very, very powerful tool when you're moving away. And then a focus on nourishing foods, more wholesome foods. And then obviously there's the practical tools of moving away from tracking if you want to do it in steady stages, you know, break, moving away from it slowly and steadily. But I'd say to mitigate the stress of it, um, that can be really, really beneficial to mitigate the fear of it is understanding your feelings behind it and focusing on being more aware of the quality of your diet. And then if the fear of moving away from tracking is still so strong, take it in steps and stages. Don't just pull the rug out from under yourself. Take it slowly. Not everyone has to do it the same way. Some people are pull the rug out from under it, delete the app, ready to go. Let's bring it. I'm in a good place. I can do this. I'll track my emotions. I'll focus on nourishing foods. And for some, that's perfect. But for others, it can be taken in a tiered process is going to be more beneficial, you know, like reducing tracking to five days a week, you know, moving slowly on stop tracking fruits and vegetables, you know, dropping it down to just tracking two weekdays in a week, like a weekend, like slowly doing it like that can be helpful for some people too. moving to a point where you just track protein to keep an eye on nutrients like spot check once in a while. There's so many ways to steadily reduce it, but that's going to be very personal, irrelevant of how you choose to do it that way. I do believe understanding the emotions, tracking your feelings along with your food and a focus on eating more nourishing foods throughout and making that choice I said before of like choosing to do things because of how they make you feel, not because of fat loss, choosing habits because they make you feel better, because they make you feel nourished, because they make you feel fueled, because exercise makes you feel good. It releases endorphins. More of a focus on those things would be really beneficial too. What about if you are struggling to put a name on the feeling or the emotion? So say if you haven't done this where you have kind of like turned the tap the feeling tap off if you know what i mean and that's the feeling tap so you're kind of like you, you you haven't let yourself feel or you haven't let yourself kind of like sit there with an emotion before would it be a, like how how would you like especially with like the moon and food journal which is something that we, we're working with on some, with some of the clients at the minute and like the biggest thing that come back is what well, i don't know if i should be eating if I'm feeling negative. Should I be eating when I'm like, I haven't, I've had breakfast, but I skipped my lunch. Should I be, and I'm still not hungry at dinner. It's kind of like, well, what are you actually feeling? Are you feeling stressed? That's probably why you're not eating. If that would be my case, it's like, I'm, I don't really eat when I get stressed, but, but Dallas, Dallas would probably eat when he gets stressed. Because and, and Dallas's exams prove that. Oh, the job. <laughs> so yeah, Dallas openly admits it. But I'm the complete opposite. Like, so if I'm not eating, I'm kind of like, well, I'm stressed now. So what do I need to relieve my stress? Do some breath work. Do like three, four big deep breaths in, box breathing. And you notice the tension goes out of your chest. You notice you feel better. Even walk out to get some some, some air or whatever it may be. But what, what would you say to someone that is like struggling to tune in to how they're actually feeling? Because that is the hardest part. I'd say focus on the physical sensations first because they're very easier. They're much easier to understand. It's like how you physically feel like instead of just jumping straight in at the emotional, if you're finding it hard to address your emotions, but knowing how you physically feel may lead to you understanding emotions. Like if you have a physical reaction to stress, your stomach knots up or anything like that, you may not be able to name that it's stress, but you can name if I've lost my appetite, I'm not hungry and you'll know that you haven't eaten all day. So you can start addressing that those physical those physical reactions may start to define the emotion for you and may help you be able to name the emotion and how you're feeling. I don't believe when you're you're focusing on tuning into that that you need to ignore those feelings and those physical feelings and eat anyway because you're trying to learn how to tune in and understand. But if you don't eat because you're stressed, And then you end up overeating when you eat. That highlights something for you. It's like, oh, okay. So you're learning. You're curious. You're learning. All of it is data. All of it is helpful. So you don't, 
there isn't a right or wrong. And that's something I really want to reiterate to people who are listening. It's like not being able to understand and recognize your emotions is natural and normal. We repress them for so many reasons in our life. And it can be terrifying to open the dam, you know, and just let everything out, you know, and what you might learn, you probably don't want to. So it's okay to take your time with it. Like use the feelings wheel if you're struggling as well to name emotions. But I would say focus on the physical and learn from that because you may be physically reacting to an emotion, but you just haven't addressed what that emotion is. And this could be the fact-finding mission that you need to start understanding the underlying emotion. So no data is bad. No data isn't enough. You know, it's like whatever you learn is enough. It's great. Every little breadcrumb on the way to figuring this out is enough and it's brilliant. And just some people might be a little faster at tracking it, getting there. Some may not. It really depends on what's there. So it's taking the first step and being consistent with it and not expecting to nail it right away because there is no nailing it. The fact you make a commitment to do this and work on it and be consistent with it and be willing to go there and try and show up and try each day and slowly learn and listen to what you can address. That is enough. That is more than enough. That is bloody brilliant. And it's more than a vast number of people will do. So just showing up each day and trying to figure it out and being willing to is enough. I think go on. Touching on that, doing the work is not dealing with ego and all that. It's the form of, as James putting it, it's the acceptance. That's what is meant by doing the work in that sense. It is just you showing up and that's the work. So it's like everyone looks at it like, no, I need to hammer myself down in this. and I really have to do it. It's like, no, you just need to be present. Because you being present not only gives you physical feeling, but it gives you emotional feeling and it gives you attachment to the present moment. And then you can make the decision where you go from there. So it's not there where you analyzing and going, oh, look, me doing the work is like I ate this because of X, Y, Z. It's you just being present to do the work. And that's what it is. What happens if you say um, you're having a negative emotion? Uh, does that mean you should never eat when it's a negative emotion or what is this what is the the play by play on that context so say if someone is struggling to understand what they're feeling but when they have defaulted or when there is a negative emotion like to say if they're like they're angry or lonely is for it would be a prime one that kind of has come up during lockdown with clients and stuff and they're feeling those emotions and their go-to has been chocolate does that mean that with by using the the moon and food journal or finding an emotion and they find out they're right they're lonely does that mean that chocolate can't be their go-to anymore or that they they shouldn't go to it anymore like what is the what is the 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 route that they can get in i would say have a comfort toolkit in place it's like if you've started to understand the emotion behind your choices if you've gotten to a point where you've realized that hunger not like angriness loneliness tiredness stress is your reason for reaching for chocolate Food can be a comfort. Food being used as a comfort is absolutely fine on occasion. It's comforting. It's wonderful. Overeating, again, absolutely fine on occasion. Very natural, very normal. The, the only time it becomes a problem is if the only thing you reach for when you are stressed, when you are lonely, is chocolate, then it's not a positive coping mechanism because it's all you reach for. And food is your only comfort. And that's when it becomes problematic. Seeking other comforts. It's taking a look at going, okay, if I am lonely, what else can support my loneliness outside of chocolate? So for a period of time, it might be beneficial when you have highlighted that it's loneliness that you choose a different comfort. So working on a comfort toolkit, some ideas of things that you can do that support the emotional need, the real need. You know, some people, I have clients who would knit, I have clients who read, go for walks, like there's people who do like, yeah, it's not all breathing and mindfulness, which is like, yeah, we'd all love to say like meditating, mindfulness, all this stuff is going to be what supports, but that doesn't work for a lot of people. And there's some people that has come to like, comes down to it. It's like, okay, if you're finding it hard to find a comfort, what's a positive distraction? And it can even be sometimes going for a shower and just giving themselves that opportunity to make a different choice, to choose something that will nourish them more. And instead of having chocolate, you might make a cup of tea. Or something to distract you from the fact that you're reaching for chocolate. It could be something simple like that. 
Eating chocolate is not an issue. Eating chocolate is never a problem. Having chocolate on occasion or comfort is not a problem. But if it's the only tool you have to support stress and loneliness, then you need to look for other tools. Then we need to find other tools to support you that are genuinely going to help the real issue because chocolate's not fixing. It can provide some comfort in the short term. But if the reason you're reaching for chocolate is stress, anxiety, anger, that's not fixing what the issue is that's causing those emotions. And it's just going to be like blocking it time and time again. So it's highlighting something for you. Chocolate's absolutely fine, but it may be worth not having it for a while while you're working on trying to find other ways to soothe the real problem. Yeah, I think I think Astrid or the anti-dietitician on Instagram when she was on, she mentioned something. I know what they said at home for a lot of people is like if hunger isn't the issue, food's not the answer. Mm. And like obviously Jane has kind of said, like if it happens the odd time, amazing. But if it's continuously the coping mechanism, other people's will be alcohol, other people's will be drugs, other people's will be food. It's looking for some sort of release. It's looking for some step dopamine or serotonin release for you to kind of bring yourself out of that lonely spot. But how often is it fleeting? It doesn't really, like, it's not that you're broken, but it doesn't really fix the the actual problem that's there. There's something deep-rooted. You need to think of yourself like a tree. You need to get to the roots to actually get it out of the ground and be able to see it fully. And that's the horrible part for a lot of people is they're not prepared. And and it's because because it's we've lived in a society for a very, very long time. Like our parents and stuff like that probably live in a society where it's not cool to talk about your feelings mm. and now the shift has been now it's okay to talk about your feelings but and there's not there's been no kind of like neutral ground it's kind of gone from one extreme to the other and people are still adjusting to it because they seem as, as a form of weakness but why not turn that on its head a little bit and say well if i'm in tune with my body and how it works and how my mind works is that not giving me the strength to be able to live the life i want to and turn on that because that's ultimately a story that you've created that you're that you're weak you're just giving yourself this whole an out that it's a story of weakness when you have no when you have no basis for it. There's no evidence behind it. It's just another identity that you've latched onto. So why not try and say it to yourself? Well, it's actually me making myself stronger and a better version of me, so I can be a better version to my family, to my kids, to me, to those around me. And that could be a better alternative. Like check in. Do you want? Do I want to nourish or do I want to punish? myself like what is this how am I going to feel when you check in with yourself before you, you take an action that like may be counterproductive to what you want or may not help you it's like do I want to nourish or do I want to punish you know is that the feeling how am I going to feel after this is this actually going to fix how I feel right now or am I going to have to keep like eating chocolate to keep distracting because I'm not facing up to what I'm actually feeling and that's when you know you mindlessly eat because it's just gone and like this, I've, I've talked about it before, I've been there. <laughs> and it is, it's pure distraction from how you're actually feeling. And for a lot of the time, I know for myself in the past, it was one distraction and two pure punishment because I knew it was going to make me feel awful. And I knew I physically and emotionally would feel awful afterwards, like bloated, feeling mentally not good, physically not good. And it is checking in with yourself about your actions and kind of thinking of your future self a little bit is this action going to support me feeling good in an hour in 24 hours you know when you can come from the complete opposite direction and be like is it actually becoming a problem so like if you're talking from a therapeutic sense like you could have all these maladaptive coping mechanisms that you go to but it's like is it becoming an actual problem for your life so it's like if your values and what you're aiming for and your values and goals are not to lose weight and you happen to stress eat every so often, is it really a problem for you in the long term? No. And that's the key. It's trying to recognize that it's like you're, everyone's going to have maladaptive coping mechanisms, but it's like the context is really the biggest key here because it's like that chocolate eating, if you're a mate and some of the calorie surplus is a wonderful thing. It's helping you gain muscle. It's also giving you that little bit of a hit cool but if you're in a diet now and actively pushing to lose weight well that maladaptive coping mechanism now becomes an issue where it's potentially screwing up what you're trying to do yeah. is it is it serving you in the direction or the person that you want to become and that's the biggest thing if, it, if it's been your coping mechanism that's not helping or serving you more often than not well then we need to change the tool exactly 
Um, Step away from like the all or nothing mentality in every aspect of the industry, including, you know, tuning into hunger and fullness, including being more mindful, including all parameters of it. It's like everything becomes very all or nothing. It's like working on your hunger and fullness and learning about it and understanding it and, you know, really tuning in. Even when you've been doing it for a long, long time, it's not going to happen all the time, but that's normal. That's being human. You know, you're going to eat beyond fullness sometimes and that's, you're going to enjoy doing so sometimes. And that's normal too, you know? It's like, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You're not trying to reach some end point, like a magical unicorn of like, you have one at nutrition. You have one at, like, you know, hunger fullness. You have one at it. And it's like, it's, it is a process. Uh, like it is a journey it is something that you're you're always going to be working on but you don't want to be out like you want to get to a point where you're not constantly thinking about it all the time and it does become more natural and natural when it becomes more natural and flexible it is that it's like our needs aren't linear physically or emotionally like throughout our life things are going to adapt and change a little bit and that's okay it's being okay with just sometimes doing just enough I think is a huge part of it you know and it's, yeah. a, it's a hard, it's hard for people to grasp sometimes when you're stuck in all or nothing and everything is all or nothing that, you know, just doing something, <laughs> you know, that even just kind of like flowing along and just living your life and isn't enough. That's being lazy. That's being complacent, you know, yeah. that you just, that body, what, what are you striving for? Are you not trying to build more muscle? Are you not trying to, you know, lose more weight? Like, you're you're just good. This is good, and it's like no, not no. You can be working on things, but it's not always about how you look. Sometimes it's about your health, and sometimes your health is better served by you know making choices that aren't extreme. Extreme, like extreme, hasn't served many. No, but yeah, people will continue to go back for it, and it's very difficult to promote balance like if we're if i like if i'm trying to like look for clients and stuff you're having the call the initial consultation with them i'm sure dallas and jane said it's you're like so i can have any food i want and there's nothing off limits you're like yes what's the catch (laughs) you dip to yourself you got to feel your feelings that's the catch (laughs) that's the catch get uncomfortable we do things a little bit differently here um uh, so I think we've got like two more questions because I know we could easily do a whole podcast for a whole day. Um, so Jane kind of alluded to one of the questions that kind of came in is how do I maintain my weight and I stop tracking? So Jane kind of gave a few examples, but we need to stop. We need to change the question. We need to stop focusing on the question and kind of move to is it stopping you from embracing your journey and becoming more of an intuitive eater? The end goal has to be that you want to become an intuitive eater. You want to eat so-called in inverted commas normally. I hate that word. But there's no such thing as normal eating. It's normal to you. It's like normal to Dallas, completely different. Normal to Jane will be completely different to what I do. It's normal and subjective to every single person. You need to you need to change the goal and focus on the question. Like you're almost looking to kind of like transfer the goal from counting macros, counting calories, to the order of controlling your body weight, and you can't control that. That is fluctuations. It's going to happen. It's going to change at every moment of the day. If you weighed yourself at twelve o'clock. To 12 or woods probably going to be completely different it's literally a moment in time it's measuring your relationship with gravity at that moment in time it is not relate measuring your relationship between you and yourself so it's shifting the control away from the counting of calories or your weight and moving that to controlling to become more intuitive to what actually serves you in the direction you want to go you need to kind of this is the hardest part. You need to kind of remove the tagline of that my weight is going to remain stable because that's almost like a, a false kind of like dichotomy in that it's going to like, it's not realistic to expect your weight to remain the same weight every single day. You're you're probably going to get a little bit annoyed if you monitor, like there's two, two ways to do it. Remove the scale, fuck it out the window, drive it over with the car or get a hammer. Or the other way is step on it every single day and understand how your body works. There's two different trains of thought. If you have an eating disorder and it's triggering you, please go and talk to someone and remove the fucking scales. But you need to look at it and say, like, your weight's not going to remain stable. It will give or take off between a few pounds. It may even go between a few kilos if you're on a particular time of your month, if you were a girl. So it's, it's, it's kind of moving towards that. 
it doesn't mean not weighing yourself. It doesn't mean ignoring the basics of getting decent veggies in. It doesn't mean get, ignoring the whole things of getting decent protein in or decent macronutrients in. And it definitely doesn't mean that you have to gain weight. It doesn't mean you have to lose weight. It doesn't mean you have to maintain weight. It means accepting that things are going to fluctuate on a daily basis. It means that you have to kind of come and be uncomfortable with things that are changing because you can't ultimately control this. And if you're coming from a controlling background, it's very difficult to realize this. And this is where what Jane and Dallas have spoken about already is becoming in tune with how you actually feel. And if, we, if your self-worth is attached to the piece of plastic, then your identity is probably attached to that piece of plastic. So it's kind of like that scales has no power unless you have given it the power. You've literally changed, like sh- shaken hands with the devil mm-hmm. and made an agreement and sold your soul to it. But what about trying to get out of that clause? Why not try to break that contract? And have a contract with yourself that I'm going to be the best version of myself that I can actually be. And understanding that you can have the foods, potentially the foods that you haven't had before. Bringing in the foods, not treat. I hate the word fucking treat. Does that mean punishment on the other end? I hate the word sin food. I hate all that negative language towards food. But it's saying to yourself, I can have, and I think Leanne Ward was on and she's talking about it, like it's, it's a soul food. It's good for the soul. So like it's bringing and say, right, well, I'm going to have a date now. I'm going to have a pizza Friday night or Saturday night with my partner or a takeaway. I'm going to have chocolate every day. And when people think about like, well, I can't have chocolate every day. Like, well, you're having it already, probably. But the context is different in that you're giving yourself unconditional permission rather than trying to eat and hide, and hide it. And then giving out yourself when you lose control over it. Because it's not a binge, it's an emotion that's there. If you are binge eating, it's very, very different because you can't control it, you lose control. It's like an out-of-body experience for some. And there's a big fluctuation on that language as well. So tips to remove tracking. Jane, delete, just kind of mentioned a few of them. Delete the app and go cold turkey. Reducing from like seven days a week to six days a week to five days a week, four days a week and go that way. Do a food and mood journal, like log in and say, right, how do you feel before a meal? Am I hungry for this? Check in after the meal. Am I actually satisfied or do I want that little bit more? Pause and say, hang on. Am I just going for this because I'm having a cup of tea, so I'm going to have some chocolate with this? There's no problem with that. But if there's some other emotion there, like loneliness, well, why not ring a friend when you're having a cup of tea or invite a friend over for a cup of tea? The restrictions are easing up a little bit, so we could potentially do that. Follow your regular guidelines of getting protein, veggies, fats, carbs, and in with each meal. You need to kind of look at kind of removing the label of, skinny foods or protein foods and removing those labels away from things well i'm only going for this because it's within my calories but why not say what like i want to have this why can't i have this um stop weighing yourself so often would probably be another one as well but there are there's so many different things there and it, it, as as jane and dallas have said it depends is the famous answer we've always given context matters if someone is struggling please do go talk if you have an eating disorder tracking isn't for you so go back and listen to Coach's Corner, Volume 21, when we talk about my fitness file a little bit more detail, who it's for, who it's not for. Um, Dallas, the last question after my tangent uh, <laughs> is in relation to the training side of things. And it's kind of coming in an awful lot more. For, for, I don't know why it's kind of coming in so often in relation to the likes of, of deloads. First of all, what is a deload? How long should you give before you go on a deload how long should you go for the deload and how much of a rep uh reduction or a, a weight reduction should you go for so we'll start off nice and easy a deload is essentially trying to reduce volume or intensity you can do it different ways of your training to ensure that local fatigue so muscle fatigue and systemic fatigue whole body fatigue lower so that way you can keep seeing adaption you don't run yourself into the ground now i'm going to say something that a whole bunch of people are going to get all annoyed about which is normal which is majority of the population who are training don't need deloads your life gets in the way enough as it is and two you don't train with enough intensity or volume to warrant a proper deload and bullshit and yeah (laughs) you're a liar dallas like no and i went to the sort of thing (laughs) careful now (laughs) 
but it, <laughs> it's a big thing in terms of that everyone always goes like, oh, I need to deload every four weeks. It's like you probably need to train longer and a little bit harder to see a deload. And the reason why the deload originally came is if you want to think about it from actual high level athletes who, especially track and field athletes, who were pushing the upper echelon of volume and intensity. It wasn't, oh, look, I did three by 12 and oh, on week four, I'm at four by 12. Oh no, I need to deload. It was, you're going out there and you're trying to break world record sprints. You are pushing. And then you've got to take two hours break, eat some food, have a nap, come back and repeat the same thing again. I went, when you're hitting the level of intensity and volume where it physically drains the body, then deloads should be implemented. For the majority of population, a deload is not needed. It is you need to be better at recovering. That's what you need. And everyone gets a no, 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 my sleep's on point. I'm like, mm, yeah, good one. Your body's saying otherwise. Exactly. And that's it. It's like, if you improve your sleep and you improve your nutrition, but ensure that you are getting a decent amount of protein, deloads are fine. But then it also comes down to the program. If you are hitting max volume and max intensity in week two, you're doing it wrong. It's like you're trying to burn the body out. So it's like everyone wants to train like these elite athletes. It's like you're not an elite athlete because if you were, you would have been there. So get past that move on and start realizing that you want to be at roughly 75%. When you're at sub-maximal loads, you can continue pretty much indefinitely because you're never truly getting to the high amount of volume that you can't recover from and you're never getting too high of intensity that you can't recover from. And that's how you program. So it's like, cool, there are times where you want to push intensity, but volume will come down. There are times you're going to push volume, but intensity will drop. And that's how you do things. Another way of looking at it is if you feel like you need to deload after you spent at least eight to 12 weeks, I would recommend probably aim for 16 weeks on a program, ideally. But a lot of people are no, I can't do the same thing for 16 weeks. I'm like, you're technically repeating the same patterns. But anyway, so 16 weeks. Someone's getting hungry. Oh, people carry on with ideas. Take your 16-week or 12 to 16-week. Your new program is effectively week one is a deload because not only is the exercises most likely going to change ever so slightly, their rep scheme is going to be different. So that means not only load will have to change, but the amount of effort you put into it will change. There's your deload. So if you see your program and you're only working out for three weeks and you spend every fourth week doing absolutely nothing, you are spending the majority of the year doing shit all. What is the point of you being in the gym then or trying to progress yourself? So that's the thing. If you are, however, actually training with intensity and volume, when it comes to a deload, one of the best things you want to do is you want to lower the volume and increase the intensity or at least maintain intensity. What's and the difference between volume and intensity? So intensity is how close you are going to failure. So if I mean failure, I mean like you can have mechanical failure or form failure. Mechanical failure literally is like when you see someone literally about to crack themselves in the bottom of the squat and they're literally about to die. That's your mechanical failure. Your muscles literally give up and you ain't getting back up. You're pretty much broken. But then your form failure is essentially, if you do another rep, you're, you're probably going to get close to hurting yourself. So that's intensity. Volume is the amount of times you do the sets and reps. So volume could be essentially the tonnage move. So if you move 100 kilograms 10 times, that's your point of volume. If you move it now 20 times, volume is increased. The amount of time of work you've done has increased. So when you deload, the easiest thing to do is drop volume, keep that intensity the same. And the reason behind that is dropping the volume will give you a couple of extra, say, two sets, three sets. But because you're close enough in intensity, it's still giving the body enough time to recover and you can come in and keep going. Some people don't work well with that. So if you're a person who is pushing proper high intensity and your joints are going, ah, ah, well, then you're going to have to reduce your, at least your volume by a good 20, 30% and then reduce your intensity so that way you still have a bit of uh, reps left in the tank. But for majority of people, holidays, sickness, birthdays, special occasions interrupt everything and those are your mini deloads. Get better sleep. But it's also like, it, it, like I think, 
girls probably have an advantage over they have a mini G load every week, every month. Oh, if, if, they, if they're if they're understanding their bodies correctly. Oh, one hundred percent. It's like the same with like Neve trains. It's just like it's like oh, this week was hard. I didn't get like my numbers. And I went like, well, I really know that. It's like I don't expect you to go and get those numbers because it's like that is your week. You're like, I'm cool. So you see fatigue starts to drop, and then the next week PBs come. It's like, oh, well, because now you've already had that little bit of deload. So it's like if you look at life, deloads are there naturally. Train with some maximal volume. Life is easy. Less injuries. You don't feel burnt out. And then you can actually enjoy yourself and look good naked because ideally that's the point. Yeah. I, I agree with Alice on the last point. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think there's like there's so much there. Like we've been talking for like probably an hour and fifteen at this stage, but I think it's important to to kind of look at like is resting heart rate indicator of recovery? How to come off um, a dieting phase into maintenance? It depends. Is truly the answer? How to trust your body when you have ignored your hunger signals for years? How to wean yourself off counting counting calories if you're afraid to lose weight? When should you deload? And I know. Um, if one of the kind of other questions that kind of came in was when should you when when food and weight is always on your mind like how how to live your life I think it's important to know that there is support out there if it, if it is kind of like overwhelming your life um, it's kind of potentially looking at what is actually important to you are you looking to to kind of is your identity caught up in your weight and that's the thing. You need to look at it from that point of view. There are body-wise in Ireland, that kind of side of things, eating disorder therapists and stuff like that that are out there. There is support um, for, for those people. Uh, we can't go into it in an awful lot of detail um, because we have to stay in our lane. And that's something that I will always pride myself on. I know Dallas and Jane does as well. So if you do struggle with that side of things, I think it's important to know that there are support groups and, uh, and people out there you can actually go and talk to. And that's the hardest part is just making that initial contact. Um, you're not alone on your journey. There are unfortunately other people who are coming from that background and there are people who have come out of it on the other side of it. Um, so I do think that's an important thing to say. Is there anything else you want to guys add to anything or... Ask yourself if you hold tightly onto the thought and let it dictate what it does with my body, will it get closer to my values and the life I want to live? So a lot of people come up with this thought and then they just decide to clinch onto it. It's recognized that if you actually clinch onto that thought and let it dictate what you do with your body and your life, is the life you're going to end up living what you want? Easy. I like that. Um, Jane, Dallas, thank you so much for having the chat as always. Uh, so, guys, if you want us to do more Q and A's, or if there's more topics that you want us to cover on the Coach's Corner episodes, please just DM us or uh, pop us a, a message directly, whatever it may be. If you are interested in working with us uh, as coaches, please do pop us a DM or ask go to www.shanewalshfitness.com forward slash online coaching or the easiest way is just to DM us and we can book in a, a call. Uh, we do things a little bit differently as you've probably recognized. Quick fixes ain't us. So don't come for a quick fix. Um, plus you're not broken. Um, so if you've enjoyed the episode, guys, please do tag us up on your story and I hope you have an amazing day. Thanks, guys.